Thanks, Dan. Allie, did you like our space age lighter? It's like a cattle prod. It's pretty awesome. It's rechargeable, so it's good for the environment. I don't know. Hey, welcome. My name's Brad. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. Thanks for all those who are online. Yeah, like Dan said, this is our first week into Advent, and it seems like this year has flown by at the slowest speed possible, right? Uh, we bought our Christmas tree on Friday. It is the earliest I have ever gotten a Christmas tree, but I was drastically overruled in the car when we drove by the Christmas tree farm. Uh, it was two screaming boys yelling Christmas tree and a very persuasive wife just saying, let's get it so we can shut them up. <laughs> so we did. We have a Christmas tree in our house before December, which is just weird to me. But it's here. Advent's here. Um, it's a little bit of a different flavor. Thanksgiving was different for many of us. Christmas is going to be different for a lot of us, uh, but uh, there's a good thing about this as we get to focus on, even in the dark times of uh, history, when we go back to the first century, uh, Jesus still came to those places and he'll come meet us in our places today. Uh, so we are going to start Advent and we're going to start Advent right where the New Testament begins. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew writes this book of the Bible uh, to prove one thing, that Jesus was a king, uh, King Jesus, and he's writing to the Jewish people saying that Jesus is the rightful king and not that Herod guy who's in office. It's Jesus. And so he goes on and he begins by telling this kind of genealogy. It is a genealogy. It starts with Abraham and goes all the way through to Joseph, his dad, uh, or Jesus's, I guess it would be his like earthly father. Uh, I don't know a better way to put it. But it's, he goes all the way there, and genealogies are weird. We don't really do genealogies nowadays. I, I dug up some of mine. My dad's parents were named Milton and Margaret. Milton is a rad name. Uh, they were from a rural town in Michigan called Deckerville. Uh, if it helps you with geography, for those of you who are familiar, Deckerville's in the thumb. Okay? Michigan is America's high five. That's what I've been told. And so it's, it's in the thumb. It's a couple hours outside of Detroit. But Grandpa Thayer Milt was a, a, an entrepreneur. He raised turkeys. And then, and then he also raised turkeys. He raised my dad, who we'll call a turkey, and his two brothers, who were turkey-like. Uh, he was an entrepreneur. He led the charge when it came to poultry and egg sales in the upper Midwest. My dad would drive trucks for him back and forth. My grandma Thayer, she was a schoolteacher. My mom's dad, Grandpa Roberts, his name was Floyd, which is another rad name. He married a woman named Alberta Ingram, who they, they came from Argyle and Snover, Michigan. My parents are from Michigan daily. My dad would remind us whenever we were cold, we would say, he would say, be glad I moved. We're not in Michigan anymore. Mom and mom's mom was also part Canadian. Um, Canadians are polite. That room of the tree did not get to me. The politeness fell off somewhere between my brothers and my mom. Grandpa Floyd was a lot of things. Uh, he worked as a community farmer. He worked as a gas station attendant. He was an auctioneer. He was a salesman. He owned a restaurant. He worked in a factory. He drove the school bus. And then, then for a while, when he was in his 90s, he was the greeter at the local Walmart-like store, the IGA. He was really good at shooting pool. I remember in our in our living room, he would play pool with me, and he would school me. Uh, he died at the ripe old age of 102. Mom's mom, Alberta, was a homemaker. She was also the mail person. She, she did the postal service route all through town. 
Mom and dad grew up in Deckerville. They met uh, in Deckerville. They kind of grew up together. Uh, and then uh, during, during the summer, sometimes we would go back and visit Michigan. One time we dared to go back in the wintertime. It was around Christmas. It was for my, grand, my grandpa's 100th birthday. And while we were there, the most exciting thing happening in Deckerville, which had one stoplight for the entire town, the most exciting thing was happening outside of town, if you can call it a town. Uh, it was a Christmas tractor parade. It is just as exciting as it sounds. They would take their tractors or their farm utensils, they would dress them up in lights, and they would drive down Main Street, the only street, and they would drive down. The best part was it was 17 degrees in freezing rain, and we were watching it. My dad looks at me and says, you're welcome. We moved. But we'd go back in the summertime, too, and we'd go back there. When I was little, we'd go visit my Uncle Harold. It's my dad's uncle, so it was my great-uncle. My great-uncle Harold, he was the, the family historian, he, because he was alive for most of it. But he, he would tell us all about who came from where and when, and he wrote it all down somewhere. But he would tell me that my great-great-grandfather rode for the Pony Express, which was awesome. And then he'd tell some of the stories that his grandfather told him about camping at night and then sharing the campsite with some guy named Jesse James, who he said was a weird fellow but slept with his guns like this. But, you know, it, the Jesse James. And I'm like, oh, man, that's awesome. And then if you take my family line back far enough on my, mom, on my dad's mom's side, uh, you're going to find someone named King William. Yes, you are amongst royalty. If the unthinkable happens, and I watch The Crown now because Carrie watches it, so I have to watch it. If the unthinkable happens and enough people die in a certain sequence, I'll be king. Have you all seen King Ralph? Yes. Okay, you need to watch it, John Goodman. It's a possibility here. I could be king. You know, it's, it's fun when we look around and we look back, and some of us have great joy in going and taking the ancestry test of where we came from. Some people and some others don't. It's marked with some embarrassing things or, or some things that you're not too proud of the way some of your ancestors might have lived. In our society, genealogies and family trees have kind of gone by the wayside. Uh, we, we, we don't like to study about our weird uncle or our aunt who likes to post all those things on Facebook. And we know what things they are. We know what kind of aunt we're talking about. We all have one. If you don't, you're it. But we all have that relative that when they start talking, we go, oh, no, this could go one of two ways. We don't really pay attention a lot to our family lines, our genealogies. In other countries... Your genealogy is sort of like your resume. You're this person's kid. You're this person's grandson. You're this person's great-grandson. Therefore, you are this way. For us, we don't have that kind of genealogy. Instead, we have an origins of us that's inside of our brain. I came from this person. I went to this school. I studied this study subject. I've worked here. And you make up all of these decisions. You make up your own family tree based on the family of you. And so though we don't have genealogies much, we might know a little bit about it. What matters to us is your past, your own personal genealogy. And the idea of what Matthew does here in chapter 1 of airing out these vast names of people 
of, of someone's past, if you think about it for you, might seem kind of worrisome. Matthew hangs out all the dirty laundry in the front yard of the house and says, look, here it is. Here's all of it. What if someone did that to you and they took your personal genealogy and hung it on the front of the, of the, of the busiest road, 65th and 15th, let's just use that one, and said, here you are, Brad there. everyone can see everything about you. How would you like that? I would not. But Matthew does that for Jesus. No one wants to see the secrets, but Matthew's not afraid to show them why. Because he knows a few things here and there about the way God works through those most embarrassing moments. And if we pay attention to what Matthew's doing here, what Matthew does while telling the story of Jesus teaches us some valuable lessons of how our stories are written. Let's look. Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham had many sons. Just kidding. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Now, when you start digging around with who are these people that Matthew's meeting, right off the start line, Matthew's doing something extremely strange. Most stories begin, if Jewish ancestry, will all go back to Abraham in some way. But Matthew says, Abraham, and then this doesn't really happen. He ties it all of a sudden with King David. And so if you're a first time reading this in that time period, you look at this and go, oh, this is interesting. This is a a royal type of ancestry. But Matthew keeps going. He has a point to this, and we'll get to it in the middle. But did you notice some of the other names here? Great-grandfather Jacob. He's one branch of the tree that you probably go, oh, do we have to talk about Jacob? Jacob, there's a whole lot about Jacob that I wouldn't be too proud of. He was a liar. He was a cheater. He was a swindler. He played favorites with his kids. He pitted them against each other and was ambivalent when his daughter was attacked. And then his sons went out and took care of business for him. He was in it it all for him, for his status, for his comfort, for his benefit. He was a con man. And if he were around today, he would have an electronic bracelet around his ankle and he'd be followed by a parole officer. Every place he would go. This is the person in Jesus' lineage. One of the first names mentioned. Jacob. The other sons that are listed are the ones who sold Joseph into slavery. All all 11 of them. And then they lied to cover it up. Would you be proud of that uncle or that grandfather? No. Who else is here? Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Judah, I named my son after Judah, so there is a redemption story to Judah. But Judah doesn't stray far from his father. One of his sons passed away. And the custom of that day was if your son passed away, the next oldest son would marry that, that, the man's widow. Judah made sure that didn't happen, or he didn't do anything to make sure it happened. So Tamar, the widow, remained a widow inside of Judah's household. When the next son grew up, that son died, and the next son was growing up, and Tamar had no faith that that person was going to live, or or Judah was going to do the right thing. So Tamar took uh, matters into her own hands. Judah's wife had died, and he was going someplace. Tamar dressed herself up, sat by the gates. Judah came into town, thought she was a prostitute. 
exchanged services. They went. Uh, and then afterwards, he was paying, and he said, I'll send you a goat. And she says, how will I know you'll send me this? And she says, give me some kind of identification of who you are. So he gives her, like, the family seal. Three months later, Tamar shows up. She's pregnant. And Judah says, have her executed. And then she holds up the family seal and says, it's your kid. This is in Jesus's line. This is something you see on Jerry Springer's show or Maury Povich, the father of the test. This is here. Yet this is in Jesus's lineage. This isn't exactly what you'd want your family tree to be. Then Matthew 1 verse 5, Salmon or Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab. Joshua chapter 2, Rahab, she does a noble thing, but Rahab's past is not really that shiny. She was the town call girl for Jericho. When spies came in, they stayed with her and she hid them. She did a noble thing, but she's not really the person that you would want a prostitute in your family line. That's not someone that we brag about. Not only is she a, not a, pro, she's a prostitute, she wasn't Jewish. She's from Canaan and she lived in Jericho, yet, yet she's included. Let's keep going. Jesse, the father of King David. Jesse, the father who forgot that he had a son named David. Read the story in 2 Samuel. Uh, Samuel comes in. He, he says, uh, let me look at your sons. We're picking a new king. Saul's kind of blown it. And so he looks at all the sons. And then Samuel looks at him and goes, do you have any more? And Jesse goes, oh, oh yeah. I got that other, that other kid of mine, David. He's He's this short little redhead, fair-skinned, ruddy kid. He's out riding or watching the sheep. Yeah, David. That's a great father, right? He's included. And then you go to David. David was a mixed bag of emotions. He wrote the most groundbreaking psalms, yet at the same time, he seduced his, little, his, his military captain's wife. And then in order to cover up his mistake, he had him killed. He's in... He's in He's in the lineage. You'd think that story would be left out, but it wasn't. Bathsheba gave birth to Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Solomon, the guy who had so many wives he couldn't keep track of, and then another host of concubines. This is the perfect person you want in your family line, right? And then his son, Rehoboam, divided the kingdom. So imagine this scene. Matthew is rolling out this genealogy of Jesus. And he's saying, yes, this is going to be a royal genealogy. And then he lists a liar. He lists a cheater. He lists an adulterer. He lists another liar. And you're looking around going, why on earth are you doing this? But it's not all bad. In fact, if you look through it, there are some bright spots. Ruth, she wasn't Jewish, but she stuck with her, her mother-in-law after her father-in-law and husband had died. Ruth is in the line of Christ. She gave birth to Boaz, or she married Boaz. In Ruth, we see a picture of God's loving kindness. In her care for Naomi, in her marriage to Boaz, we see a picture of God. Hezekiah is in verse 10. Hezekiah was the king of Judah during the time when Israel, the southern part of the kingdom, was attacked in 722. He looked at it and said, that's a bad thing. They're getting attacked. Let's clean up our camp. And so he goes through the temple and he throws out all the idols. And he starts this religious revival. He brings the nation of Judah back 
to God. It lasted for a while, and then he passed away, and then the next king, who was also listed, took over. You can read all about Hezekiah in 2 Kings. He's listed as one of the few righteous kings that were in existence after David. The good and not so good. They all find their home in Christ's line. They show us that Jesus came from a line of humans that were full of the faults of everyday people. People whose actions and whose personal story would disqualify them from ever being mentioned in any kind of royalty. Even so, with all the good and all the evil, they were still a part of Jesus' line. And some might argue that they were put there for a reason. And here it is. Because though their faults and their fruits, but through their faults and their fruits, we get to see the unstoppable movement of God's grace. That God's grace doesn't stop, that God's grace doesn't stop when someone fails. No matter the person, no matter the background, nothing will stop the unstoppable wave of God's grace. Nothing will ever slow down the purpose of his plan. Not pain, not shame, not mistakes, not regrets, not embarrassments, not infidelities. Not addictions, not lies, not dysfunctional families, not ambivalence, not hidden habits, or whatever else there might be. All of those can be found in Jesus' line. Nothing can stop the movement of God's grace. Because look where he came from. And no matter where you are today, you can find yourself in Jesus' lineage. That tells me this. If he can work through all of them to bring about Jesus, he can work through all of you to bring about Jesus. Nothing can stop his grace. There's another lesson that we can learn here. It goes along with the last one, but goes a little bit nerdier. And if you like, if you know me a little bit, you know I like to get nerdy. Matthew is doing something here. In this list of names, it's not just a list of names, but if you look at the way he compiled the list, he arranges it in a way that might have piqued the Jewish people's minds and ears when they heard it. Matthew positions, the, the positioning of Jesus shows us that he's just not one member of a dysfunctional family tree. But Jesus is actually the goal of the family tree. It's where the whole thing was pointed. The list full of everything that's here has the sole goal of Jesus being revealed. He arranges the list of names, and you can count this, into six groups of seven names. And if you think of numbers in the Bible, there are a few numbers that pop out. Six is the number of man. In Revelation, 666 would be the the Antichrist or the, the mark of the beast. It's supposed to elevate the idea that man, or we are of ourselves and human power. Man was created on the sixth day. It's the sign of imperfection. The seventh day belongs to God. In the scriptures and in the temple, seven always points to perfection. It always points to God. It always, it's his number. So, so if you look at the numbers associated, and this is getting really into it, if you look at the numbers and the way this whole thing is structured, Jesus is at the beginning of the seventh sequence. He's the seventh name of the seventh sequence. He is where this whole thing is pointing to. In other words, what Matthew's implying is that it's not Jesus, is not just the climax of this whole genealogy. He's what Israel and everybody would have been looking forward to this entire time. It's the perfection. This is the completion. 
all of this, through all the bad times, through all the kings that have failed, through all the exile, through the dark parts, through that 400 years of silence, the point of all of it was to bring about Christ. Why is this important? Because the places where you and I get our reasons to disqualify ourselves are the very same places where Jesus wants to be revealed. The places when we look back at our whole lives, Jesus says, I see those places and I want to show up in the pain. I want to show up where you've disqualified yourselves. I want to show up where you have taken yourself out of the game and say the reason why you feel disqualified is the very reason why I want to put you in the starting lineup. We live in a Christian culture that glorifies perfection at the cost of authenticity. So when something that happens shows that we're, that we're imperfect, we stress and we strive to cover up that mistake. We don't want any of our weaknesses to show. So we put on, not these masks, but other masks to hide in order to impress. We cover up our problems by going deeper into debt. We act like our marriages are solid even though there are some rocky problems. We say the right things, we post the right things, but really, there's really no change in our heart. Deep inside, we know that we're broken, but our biggest fear is not brokenness. Our biggest fear is other people finding out that we're broken. So out of fear of being found out, we isolate. Sometimes we isolate in the middle of our small group. We have to keep the appearance that we're okay. So we go to a small group or we jump into a community. We start serving. But really, we're isolating ourselves because we don't want anyone to find out our problems. We want everyone to think we're okay, but really we're fooling no one but ourselves. Then we compile our own list of names and our own list of faults and failures and the reasons why we can't. And the reasons why God won't. I have my list and I'm really familiar with it. Uh, I'll never be a decent pastor because I have a battle with anxiety that is ongoing. So God won't use me there. That's one of my things that pops up. I can't lead a church. I've been let go from several of them. So if they can't keep me, why would I ever be kept here? These are the things that go on in my head. Maybe you have something similar. You'll never be a good husband or father because I was addicted to pornography for a number of years. You're disqualified. Uh, God won't do things through you because do you remember your 20s? Vaguely. I do. All of these reasons, and at times they pop up in my head and they start thinking, wow, and I start thinking, wow, will God ever use me? And I begin to disqualify myself. And I remember having these thoughts back uh, probably 2010 or something like that. And I was sitting with my friend of mine who was the pastor of this church that I was helping plant. And we were in Garden Grove, California at a Starbucks. And I'm sitting there across the table and he's, he's kind of just grilling me. He knew a lot about me. He knew most things about me. And he starts just talking and goes, what, what's your deal? Uh, every time we invite you in for more responsibility, you have an excuse and you back out. He was absolutely right. Every time that he would say, hey, do you want to teach on Sunday? And I go, no, I'm good. That's fine. Hey, do you want to do? No, I'm, I'm okay. And he started pressing me more and more. And, and he, he began to uh, call me on my excuses. 
And he was true. He was right on. Because behind all of my excuses and my insecurity was my fear of being found out and my fear of shame. He said to me, those reasons, Brad, that you keep yourselves out are the exact reasons why I think God wants you in. And then over time, he just laid into me and he says, hey, there's a verse that keeps popping up in my head for you. And here it is. But he said to me, and this is 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For where I am weak, I am strong. It's the part in 2 Corinthians where Paul starts talking about this thorn that's in his flesh. It's this thing that won't go away. It's the reminder of something. We can speculate, and that's all we have is speculation of what that was. Was it a guilty conscience? Was it something about his personal life? We don't know. And those who say they have a sure bet on what it is that kept Paul back or that thorn in his flesh, and they think they know for sure, they don't. What we do know is that there was something that was haunting Paul. He alludes to it in Romans 7 where he keeps falling into the sin. And, and then he's asking for it to be removed and Jesus says, no, because my grace is sufficient. That weakness area that you keep wanting to avoid is the place I want to use the most. It's not the reason to disqualify you. It's not a reason to put you on the shelf. It's not a reason that you can't do anything. Because at the end of the broken branches of the family trees in our hearts is where Jesus wants to reveal himself in your life. Chances are you have a list. And you know far too well the tree of disqualifications. And you've named every branch. Every failure, every shameful thing. And if you're like me, you have them all planned out and you know exactly where they are. But the list of reasons that, that you don't want anyone to show, your, to show or to see, the list of reasons that you don't want anyone else to see or the reasons you don't want to see yourself are the same reasons that God calls you into his plan. Just like he can use all of the failures to bring Jesus about, he can use your entire past to bring Jesus through you. That's the hope we have. So here's how it works. My, my buddy Steve was right. Do you know how many people I get to talk to about Jesus and anxiety? A lot. I, I get to talk to a lot of guys about overcoming their addiction to pornography. Some people live with a past... <laughs> Uh, in their 20s and they can't get over it and I say yeah yeah let's compare notes and let's see what God can do through that doesn't make what we did right but God can still use us some people who are friends of mine in ministry are are finding themselves looking for new places to work and they go I've been fired by a church and I go yeah how which one how many is this for you just because they don't want you doesn't mean that God was doesn't and the same thing is true for you guys, too. Just because someone else calls you a failure, just because you feel like a failure, doesn't mean you are. And the beauty about Advent, the beauty about Jesus, is he comes to us in all of our imperfections and says, I pick you. 
I'm going to put you in my family line. And I am proud to have all those people in my family line. And I'm proud to have you in my lineage as well. So what's on your list? What's in your tree? And do you ever think that there might be a little hope in you that God might redeem it and use it to bring about Jesus in your life? Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you that you don't shy away from our past. You don't shy away from our mistakes. You use them. You redeem them. You restore them. And so, God, as we look back into our family trees, our dysfunctional limbs, may we give those areas to you. May we not take ourselves out of the game, but may we give those branches back and say, Lord, put us in. You want to use, you want to restore, you want to heal. we thank you that you do those things. Would you use us in all of our failures and all of our weaknesses? In Jesus' name, amen.